The next tape you hear will be <coughs> recorded at my farm in the winter time, <coughs> and um, I have led the dogs out and tied them and turned on my tape machine. <coughs> and the next voice you hear will be Moon Dog 1972 in the winter. Then you'll hear the dogs chewing on the big soup bone. The sound of Frey and Freya chewing on big soup bone. All right, here you go. Like chisels, just chewing those muscles off the bone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But that's a great sound, you know. It's just, you can you can see what's going on. Yeah. You can see it all just from the sounds, you know. All those white teeth shining there in the night, the moonlight. Ah. The snow all around. And you hear them breathing when they're chewing, yeah. yeah? It's great. That's a very primitive sound. Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, my, is that primitive. Give a dog a bone and he's in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that man, Moondog, is really living in the old times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis Thomas Harden, more commonly known as Moondog, was an American composer, conductor, artist, poet, pamphleteer, mathematical speculator, and pagan mystic. At the age of 16, Lewis found a blasting cap in a field. It exploded in his face and blinded him for the rest of his life. As painful as it must have been for him, this wordful incident forced Moondog's life into a trajectory of genius musical innovation and personal eccentricity. To maintain a sense of control and structure in a dark and chaotic universe, Moondog turned to the world of sound and music. Music became his pillar, his axis mundi, his cosmic center, a technology for him to produce order from chaos. Though originally from the prairies in the west, many associate Moondog with New York City. In New York City, Moondog was often found standing on 6th Avenue, usually around 53rd Street, a few blocks north of Bryant Park. But much of Moondog's later life would be spent in Europe, specifically in Germany, where he was able to live a more stable and stimulating life. But despite his distaste for living in the Big Apple, many people consider Moondog one of the quintessential New York eccentrics. David Bowie, for example, mentions the sight of Moondog as his first distinct New York memory. Marlon Brando allegedly used to jam with him, playing the bongos. But to most people, Moondog was just the Viking of 6th Ave. A tall, bearded, blind man, a cloak draped over his shoulders, and other homemade primitive clothes. 
a long spear in his hand, and a horned helmet on his head, amusing and confusing hundreds if not thousands of commuters on the New York City streets every day, who must have found him a dead ringer for Wotan as he appears in Wagner's operas, or similarly depicted in other romantic works of art, say, in the illustrations of Arthur Rackham. In Norse mythology, the various stories about Odin as a vagrant god, a wanderer, invites us to be cautious and hospitable towards even the most lowly of strangers, and expect the gods to assume unusual forms. Most people probably just saw Moondog as a man who dressed weirdly, oblivious to the fact that he was a true maestro. There seems to be something almost archetypical about this figure. The vagrant deity scraping out a measly living, selling pamphlets of sheet music on the street, living in squalor among empty fast food cartons, composing musical masterpieces, standing in doorways, seeking shelter from the rain. Oddly, from what I can tell of Moondog's spiritual affinity with Norse mythology, Moondog, at least at this time, did not really self-identify with Odin, despite certain and very striking phenomenological similarities between the two. You know, as a blind genius hobo poet, weaving into society with relative anonymity. Rather, it was Thor, the fierce defender of divine order, that was Moondog's favorite among the gods. And yet, it must be said that Moondog's spiritual life marched, much like his music, to the distinct snake-time beat of his own drum only the drum in this case being a trimba. A trimba is a strange triangular wooden percussion instrument of Moondog's own invention, a distinct element of his music, and which served both as a medium for him to perform his music, but also a means for him to conduct ensembles. Upon my migration to the United States in 2018, I was fortunate enough to live just a few blocks away from Moondog's corner, still in many regards recognizable as it was in the old photos, even though many other things on 6th Ave have changed. It became a site of frequent pilgrimages to me, always with the same simple ritual. From some tired bodega or bagel cart, I would buy, always, two cups of coffee, one for me and one for Moondog. Then I'd walk on over to 53rd and 6th and leave his cup there for him on a ledge where he can be seen standing in some of the old photos. That was my little communion with the Viking of Sixth Ave, a minor gesture of Scandi futurist hero worship. As part of some kind of immigrant coping mechanism, I used to spend hours sifting through old scans of Scandinavian-American newspapers, first and foremost the Brooklyn-based Nordisk Tidende. Just to provide some historical context here, there are as many Norwegian-Americans as there are Norwegians in Norway, and in Brooklyn alone there used to be a sizable Norwegian ghetto of 60,000-something square heads, including some relatives of mine. I think I found it somehow cathartic to research the Norwegian-American experience now that I found myself in similar circumstances. Besides that, Nordiskdidna is a goldmine for the sort of material that I like to work with, because it reveals so much about Scandinavian migrant attitudes at the time. And I guess I was looking for stuff that could be relevant to Brute Norse in some way. And speaking of hero worship, it seems kind of obvious that these newspapers served as catalysts for this uh, Scandinavian-American cult of uh, Leif Erikson, where Leif basically serves as this um, heroic legendary ancestor to uh, the contemporary Scandinavian migrant, right? So a superb little piece of contemporary archaeology there. But what the hell does any of this have to do with Moondog? So one day, I opened up an issue dated December 30th, 1965, 
I was casually just leafing through the advertisements, letters, and classifieds when my eyes stopped at a square white text box. It said, POM. Viking Norway set about her dead in battle. Norway's nobles go to Odin. Norway's peasants go to Thor. Moondog, 101 West 44th Street, New York. How he got the idea of submitting this poem to Nordisk Tidna is anybody's guess. This phase of Moondog's life is one where we don't really know much about what he was getting up to. I've spoken to a few people who are knowledgeable about Moondog, and none of them seem to have heard about this poem before. So even though it was just laying there in the Norwegian National Library archives for anybody to see, it still feels like my little Moondog story. As I said, many people have stories about Moondog, but few have quite as many of them as Moondog's Swedish protege and friend, Stefan Lakatos, who played and traveled with Moondog over many decades. Their unique bond is demonstrated by Stefan's dedication to honoring Moondog's life and work by performing Moondog's music in front of live audiences, playing and conducting on Moondog's instrument, the trimba. I have wanted to make an episode about Moondog for quite some time, but there's nothing that I can personally add that isn't already addressed in biographies and articles. Any serious dive into Moondog's world demands a thorough look at his music, and I am not equipped to talk very technically about music, and so I felt that the right person to talk about Moondog would of course be Stefan, the world's only professional trimba player after Moondog's passing. So, without any further ado, my name is Erik Stolzen, and you're listening to the Brute Noise Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. This is Moondog with Stefan Lakatos.
So today we have uh, Stefan Lakatos. Uh, Stefan is a musician and educator from Sweden, and we're going to talk about his friend and musical collaborator, the composer, poet, and I don't know, a pagan hobo philosopher, Moondog, who is uh, definitely a personal hero of mine. Um, Stefan has made massive contributions to the promotion of Moondog's legacy and to bring to light part of Moondog's extremely large body of work that would otherwise maybe not be known to many people. Uh, so it is definitely a great honor to welcome you here to the show, Stefan. Uh, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. I'm in Sweden. Yeah. I've, Far I've away been... from New York. <laughs> You're in New York, right? Yeah. Well, I lived in New York for a couple of years uh, and uh, not very far from where Moondog used to live, actually. Uh, but mm. I'm in New Jersey now. Yeah. Ah. Uh-huh. That was one of the last things I did actually before it's, I left uh, New York is is visit uh, his the so-called Moondog's Corner and leave him a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's not much left there. I think they built the Hilton Hotel in front, and I think it's a kind of a busy busy corner today. Yes, it is. Yeah. I was there visiting visiting it in two thousand four. the The little wall is still there. I think where you could sit. There's a little wall along the, the the sidewalk. So you live quite near to this place. Yeah, I used to live just a few blocks away from it. Uh, I actually went and saw the pictures of mm. Moondog. I tried to compare where he was standing, and I tried to find the exact place where he was standing along that little wall you were talking about. Mm. Nice. So I think that there are a lot of uh, listeners who might not even know who Moondog is. Um, so maybe you could... We could start out with that. Like, who was Moondog and why was he so special? Uh, oh, well, it's a long story to tell the whole thing from the very, very beginning. I think this biographical stuff uh, about his childhood and the birthplaces and stuff like this, you can read, I think, in the, the Moondog biography or anywhere else or everywhere else on the Internet. You can read these mm. things. And um, I, I can uh, maybe start from uh, where, I, where, where I met him or heard his music for the first time. Um, I heard him on the Swedish radio, an interview with Frank Zappa in 1968. I was just 13. Became, I just became 13 and um, I was fascinated about this um, kind of uh, very um, strange sounds of this uh, of his music there were only two compositions and uh, these uh, compositions were um, said to be recorded on the street and um, it was uh, percussion uh, like sounds which i liked very very much and very uh, uh, kind of simple melodic themes which i also took into my heart very easy I had no idea about him as a person or a composer more than these pieces. And uh, later on, I, um, I, the, the Columbia uh, album came out, the first one, 69, and then came the Magical album in the 70s. And um, he, he, this was um, uh, a record which I still admire very much and I still uh, can listen to with the new aspects all the time. Uh, Moondog learned to um, to write his music uh, in the uh, school for the for the blind in uh, Missouri, 
And he told me it was a um, hell of a work because uh, first of all, when he became blind, the whole, his whole um, environment disappeared and became new. It was a chaotic, uh, new chaotic world for him. And he needed some, um, uh, to, uh, to find a new way to, to, um, to move around in the surrounding. And also in his uh, way of life and being, and uh, he was studying music. And in music, he found uh, there were orders, order in it, and um, there were laws in it, and uh, there was something that he could uh, uh, develop um, and to, to also to make his life in inside his music. So um, first of all, he had to to learn the Braille language, of course, for the blind. And then he had to learn the, the music notation, which is uh, similar, but um, uh, the signs have different, different meanings than from the normal reading, writing braille for words. And um, uh, then it took him uh, three years uh, to compose music without having any instruments around. So he didn't uh, compose in front of a piano or something like this. He was uh, doing like the old masters to, to write it straight in his head and then to write it out on, a, on the small piece of paper that he could afford and have. You know, the, the Braille um, little device is not very, not, not very big, so you can't have very large papers. So you need some very small pieces of paper and uh, Mundo was very clever to, to find the idea of uh, writing uh, canon music. And um, the canonic writing, he needed not so much uh, paper because um, the, the canons are the same melody, but it's um, on top of each other. So um, like, a, like the magicals, very simple, there are four lines. And he could write these four lines on one piece of one page. And also the, the canon then, because it's only like maybe two bars before the next voice coming in. So it was just like, like this. So um, um, he's, he learned this. And uh, when he came to New York, he uh, could compose on the street. Even though there was noisy, uh, noisy around his uh, corner where he stand, but he could write his music anywhere. And I think that's very, very amazing how he could keep track on all his voices that he could hear in his mind and put them down on paper and hear his music in his head. And um, he, he knew exactly how it would be performed and so on. So this is... Uh, a part of his uh, career that I really, really fascinated by. It's interesting because I noticed this, that there's a, uh, a lot of emphasis on canon in his music and compositions, generally speaking. Uh, and that makes it very hypnotic. But as you say, like that's, that's a description that is often followed uh, with him, that uh, people say uh, that, uh, that he was always working and composing on the street silently. Uh, people often f seem to assume that Moondog was a busker, that he was just this man, you know, standing, you know, in his Viking outfit playing music on the street. But it seems like that is not really the case. He was he's composing on the street. No, it's not really true. That's the romantic view on it. And uh, it was not romantic at all for, for Moondog himself. It was awful. 
because he had to earn his living there. And for him, it was a struggle every day to, to survive and to find a place where to sleep till next day and to get some money in for his food and for his costs, living costs. So when we talked about, when I wanted to talk about uh, the, the situation in, Moon, in New York with Moondog, he was not interested and he didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, that's funny because everybody thinks of Moondog as the quintessential New York composer and artist, you know. Uh, yeah. But I've, from all I've read about him, he, he kind of hated being there. Yeah. Um, but it's also so funny because uh, when I approached you for this podcast, I think one of the pitches I said is that... Uh, I don't know how much of that is accidental or not, but he reminds me of the Skaldic poets in not just because, of course, he he dressed like a Viking and he was standing there, you know, in the middle of New York City. Nobody had any idea what the, what the hell he was doing dressed like that. And they thought it was some kind of gimmick and not as he saw it, uh, you know, an outward projection of his personality and worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We see, you know, naturalism as a, as a cosmetic imitation of things, right? Yes, Absolutely. But in, in like pre-Christian Scandinavian arts, they look at the essence of something, what is characteristic about a certain thing. And then they interpret it in a way that uh, answers to its nature rather than how it's like visually expressed. So it's more like uh, it mutates it into a new medium, you know? I feel like Moondog does that with rhythms, you know? You can, you can, f- he was, you know, so he loved sound so much, you can tell. Mm. He just, like his world was one of sound. And, and mm. even, even though he translates this into like melodies and rhythms and his, his rounds, you can really feel like there is a, like, the, like they, they're, they're a true interpretation of the world that he sees around him. You can hear the subway trains uh and uh, and kind of the busy streets and even though it seems like he had a love-hate relationship to the to new york and mm-hmm. yeah in in, in his um, in his music i i i don't um, uh, interpret this um, um, situation in new york or the sound of his um, environment in new york i i hear uh, totally different things i i i hear the how the uh, the melody is going and going into each other. They're fit perfectly. And every time I hear uh, the same piece, it sounds new, always. It's like hearing Moondog first time, several times. So, um, um, and, and you said it's meditative, of course. Yes, so it is when you listen to it. But uh, most of it, you, you uh, trans, uh, translate it in your head. You're sort of like co you are sort of like uh, co-working out the piece when you're listening to it. You created it by yourself, by the, the listener is creating it in his own mind. And Munro was very uh, fuzzy about that to point that out, that it's, uh, it's in your mind that happened, that where it's happening, his music. Uh, Moondog ended up moving to Europe. Is that where you yeah. met him the first time or...? Yes, yes. It was in, uh, in, in uh, Or Akenschwick. It's uh, in the Ruhr area, and uh, I had uh, the possibility to go to him uh, while uh, interrailing. So I, um, I had written a letter to him, and uh, in this letter was a, a telephone number in it, and I called this number up, and then I made an appointment and came to his house, and I made an interview that later became a, a short radio feature in the Swedish radio in uh, 1981, in the April, I think it was uh, broadcasted. 
And um, my first approach to him, I, I didn't know anything about him as a person at all. I, I, I saw pictures of him. I saw the, the cover of the Columbia album with his Viking horns, but I didn't connect it to, to um, some kind of, uh, um, I mean, <laughs> uh, image. Everybody had an image in those days. All records, LP covers were full of, of weird, um, weird, weird covers with, with people dressed up like all kinds of things. So for me, it was just one of those, you know. So uh, I knew that he was blind, of course, and I, uh, I heard about his uh, percussion instrument, which I was very, very interested in and to, to understand and to see what it was. And um, so when I met him, I think he received me very gladly because I was uh, not uh, talking about his image at all. That was uh, unknown to me. So for me, he was a composer and, 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 and a human being. And we ended up in his room, of course, talking for three days. And um, I recorded much of it on my tape recorder. And um, I became more and more uh, close to, to the, to the in, in, I got more insight in his music, which was very, very um, developing for me as a person and also as a musician. I was not decided to become a musician at that time. I, I, uh, of course, I knew some of his uh, pieces. I could sing some of his songs, but um, the the beats, the the five four, the seven four, and such stuff, it was not really uh, known to me. So um, when I saw his instrument, uh, when he played it uh, to me on the floor, sitting on the on the on the floor, I I was flabbergasted, and I I said to to him and myself that I would really really like to to learn this this instrument. I thought when I heard it the first time without knowing what it was, I thought it was two or three percussionists playing, but it was only one person with two arms that played this. And um, I was um, um, making a build uh, such an instrument when I came back to Stockholm. The first thing I did was to, to go to a carpenter um, studio and uh, make a copy of this instrument. And um, then I learned to play while listening to the recordings. And then I invited uh, Moondog to Sweden several times. And the first time uh, he came uh, in the winter already in 1980, he uh, uh, brought his clothes and stuff like this. But uh, even though Ilona, his helper, didn't like this stuff, this, uh, this outfit at all, he brought it and we made fun of it. And um, uh, we did what he wanted to do. <laughs> so we made a lot of photos and promotion and stuff and we went to the viking graves in the in Uppsala and uh, it was a big thing for him to see this but i must also point out that uh, i didn't know anything about his interests or the vikings or not i had, i had no idea about the viking at all vikings at all myself so uh, he educated me about these things but um, for me it was like um, another world which didn't uh, appeal to me and um, um, as, I, as I understood uh, later that he, um, he was very fond of it as a, um, how do you say, um, not really religious, but um, he was Christian, you know, in, in the very, very beginning of his life. And then he became, a, a, um, um, he hated Christianity and, and all kinds of religions because he lost his sight in a, in a moment where he thought that God would be here with him. But uh, it, he didn't stay there, so he became blind and uh, he lost faith.
And um, then he, <laughs> he didn't have a religion for many years. And then he found out the Viking religion and uh, it was a dead religion. So, okay, that was interesting for him. So I think the, the saga, the Edda he read and he's, I asked him where he could find all this informa information from. And that was from the 78 speed recordings for blind. There were uh, a lot of um, also um, non-fiction things, you know, for, for blind people. So he learned all this stuff uh, by himself. And uh, it was an inspiration. And uh, this thing also with the image, with the Viking image was kind of a short period of his life because before that he didn't, uh, this, this horned helmet, it was made in the, they may be 60, 768, I could imagine, uh, before, if you look at photos, before that, he didn't wear it at all. You, you couldn't uh, connect it with this, with this um, um, ideas or, or, or Viking ideas. So um, um, when he came to Europe, he also learned, that, especially Sweden, he learned that the Vikings didn't wear horned helmets. That was, uh, the archaeologist said to him, that's not, that's just nonsense. So when we had this concert at the historical museum, the professor said that no photos with this horned helmet because it, it's, it's, it's not accurate. And then Moondog took it off and said, I will never put that on again. So um, um, then we had this uh, first concert. We had played two nights at the historical museum and uh, they were very uh, friendly there. And uh, the, the boss of the museum, he was very fond of uh, Moondog's uh, dedicated to the Scandinavian uh, um, mythology and stuff like uh, like that had connected to Sweden and the Scandinavia. But for me, it's, uh, the, the, the period of, of this was a kind of, a, I have feeling that he was in a very dark, uh, dark time composing this kind of heavy stuff. It's not, it was not the moon dog that I, uh, I um, thought it would be when I met him. It was kind of a dark, uh, very, slow music, very um, kind of um, unmelodic somehow and melodic sometimes. And uh, um, there was no um, happy uh, beats of seven or five, four or something like this. It was uh, this steady uh, one or two bars, two beats for to the bar or something. And uh, the music was like, reminded me of uh, Wagner or uh, so, and the newspaper, they didn't uh, write very positive. They wrote that it was a Wagner copy and stuff like this. So it was not really a good starter for Sweden in that, uh, in that moment. Um, and um, it didn't work out really well. We were, we had some more concerts later on. And when I met him again, uh, I met him in Paris, but not, but in Sweden it was 86. Then we had performance with saxophone music and that was uh, a little uh, easier and it was more uh, appealing to the audience and that it had no, um, nothing to do with Vikings at all. And uh, then uh, um, since I started with his music, I, I tried to be uh, true to his compositions, of course. And um, my favorites are the madrigals, the, which he has written my 560 madrigals or more. And um, they are on different themes, all um, philosophical themes and so on. The Viking theme is like, it's, like, it's not even 20% uh, of these pieces, maybe 15 or so. 
um, and the rest is, is um, other, other themes. And um, I, um, I approach his music uh, from, the, from the trimba, from the, his uh, percussion instrument. That's my way of approaching to his music now. And I, I love his uh, piano music and his uh, organ music and string music. And uh, his symphonies, I haven't heard many of them. I heard the mini symphonies, of course, many of them, and uh, two or three symphonies, symphonic uh, pieces. Uh, but I think he was uh, much, uh, um, how do you say, stronger in the chamber music um, 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 style. Yeah, and, by, and speaking of style, he, he didn't care about style really because uh, he was interested in uh, tone relations and uh, beats. And sometimes he said to me that music sometimes it's written itself. I just stand there and I write a few notes and then I know what's going on with the next bars and the next bars because it's somehow like a puzzle. It's, it's uh, um, sort of like automatic writing. It's, it just fits together, off, ready. The piece is ready. Yeah, so, um, and also his combination, I like very much his combination of, of classical, Western classical tradition using uh, odd beats, lot five and seven beats into the classical field of uh, a tradition of Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and stuff. And then he combines it with this and then pentatonically with the pentatonic uh, scales with these beats, it reminds me of uh, something that is coming from the, from the Eastern, you know, like the Middle East and uh, even further, you know, to Asia. And uh, so it's a very interesting uh, combination of, of classical Western music and uh, the Asian, Asian and uh, Middle East music. That is a very, very interesting combination. And it's um, very, very beautiful also. All the things that he does is, is all, all, it's all about beauty. I think uh, the things you say here just kind of uh, just confirm this general image of him as kind of a, a person who is, uh, how should I say, uh, what maybe, I don't know, Nietzsche would call untimely. Yeah. Out of step with the immediate context he is in and, and completely out of character of its time. Completely unique, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and this is what I think... Uh, it's a sign of a very good, strong artist. It's like Samuel Beckett. He created also his own universe, and Moondog did it too. I think that's a good point, you know. And also, um, when you approach Moondog from a, from a wrong direction and try to, to put it into our times, it's, you can't do then it's time, then it's not timeless anymore. And it's, uh, uh, the, the originality is lost. So I try to find the, the magical uh, feeling in his, in his uh, compositions. I want it to be magical and um, meditative and uh, let people really go into a piece to play it as uh, if I have a round, for example, we repeat it so, so many times that the audience really can get into the piece. It's not only one minute, maybe three or four or five minutes long. Other pieces, of course, with the strings and the saxophones, they are limited, of course. They, they, they don't uh, fit to play over and over and over and over. But um, after a while, when, when I play uh, a concert, um, after a few minutes, um, hopefully there is a, a Moondog level in the, <laughs> in the audience and they can hear 
they can hear it as uh, without disturbed disturbance from other things from outside. It should be only with the music. He grabs you somehow. Moondog grabs you, and he wants you to listen to his uh, compositions. Even as soon as the first or a three, a third note comes in, you want to hear what's going on the next. It's mm-hmm. spellbound music. Mm-hmm. Spellbound is a good word, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mm-hmm. think that um, you know when we're talking about somebody who's so original and just doing something completely in his own way, like he did? Uh, do you think that he? Uh, do you think he struggled to feel understood uh, with with his both musically and creatively? Do you feel like there were obstacles that frustrated him? I or? don't. No, no, no. I, I don't think so. I don't believe that. I think he was uh, very aware of what he was doing. He was very proud of what he was doing, and his music is not difficult to approach. It comes to you easy. It's not difficult at all. It's not like um, Edgar Varese or Stockhausen or something. It's very near to everybody could appreciate it. So that I don't think was a problem for him. I, I asked him uh, this question once that um, what, what is your motor? What drives you to write the music when nobody's listening to it in our times or so? And then he said to me, I don't care because I write for the people who listen to my music in let's say 100 or 200 years. And I write for them. And it didn't stop him, stop him from writing to, to say that, oh, nobody believes me. So, no, no, he was not in this way at all. He was uh, fond of writing music, and you can hear it, that every piece is in, inspiration. There is inspiration. Mm. And oops, there is my, my cat. <laughs> oh, Let me just get my to, cat off there. He wants uh, company, of course. Hello, cat. What is his name? Grilla. Grilla. It's a troll woman from Iceland who eats children. Sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, the cat is very nice, I promise. Yeah, it's um, like uh, when I found out, when uh, I don't know if Mundo was aware of this, but um, uh, he had this um, publishing company in, in Germany called Managarm. And uh, when my, my uh, former girlfriend was reading about this uh, Managarm, it was not a nice animal. It was a, a horrible wolf type that was eating people and children and everything. So I, I wonder why he cho- chose that, that word. I think for him, it was mean the man from the moon. The man, mana is man and gar- garm is, is dog, I think. And uh, mana is moon, right? Yeah, moon. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's moon dog, literally. Yeah, I thought that that was very strange because yeah. he didn't come up with the moon dog thing as a reference to Norse mythology, but it just so happens that there is there is a moon dog in in um, in Norse mythology. Yeah, but there are other things mm-hmm. about moon dogs get up that is strange. Which, what do you think of? Uh, well, like uh, for instance, in in the scattered references he has to Norse mythology, he seems to have a, an affinity towards the god Thor uh, a little bit. And he has a very idiosyncratic interpretation mm. of Thor, it seems, from what I can tell. But he almost looks more like a Wagnerian Wotan figure. And, you know, it's always also this kind of Odin thing with the fact that he's blind and things like that. And it's just this kind of inward-oriented yeah. mm. person who sees things from within, which makes it like it's Thor is not the god that I think about, you know, the most. But maybe that's, again... Thor is kind of the one who kind of protects and secures order, right? So maybe that's something with that to do. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if he if he uh, reflected so much about that. I have, I don't I don't mm. know. 
because as I said, it was just a, a couple of years that he was uh, into this uh, world, you know, when he was writing the creation, he called it the creation, where he started with the Ginnungagap and ended with the Ragnarök. But it was, mm. uh, I think it was more inspiration, it's been inspiration. I don't think he reflected so much about uh, this kind of things. Mm. As you as you interpret now, I don't. I never heard about this before. Okay, you are more. I think you have more okay. insight okay. in the mythology than Mundog had. I'm sure. But he he knew a lot of things. He yeah. uses a song. He, he wrote a song for me called Nosa, and it's so difficult to find any information about this uh, goddess called Nosa. H n o s s a Nosa. Yeah, that's very obscure. Yeah, and he has these rounds, and he uses some old Norse terminology, but it's terminology that uh, that was created for the purpose, like the logrunder, like means like a law round or something. Yeah, the logrunder is a, it's just a, he made a, a tw he twisted the word so that it could sound a little bit Nordic or Scandinavian or something like this. Yeah, yeah. You know what logrunder means, right? Log is law and grunder, uh, mm. I guess, is... Yeah, and, and log also means the, the when you build a log cabin, a log house, it's very it's, it's a stable fund, fund, foundation, it's a fundament. Yeah, the fundament in Moondog's log under is the, the basic, uh, the baseline, which is a melodic baseline, very melodic. And on top of that, it could be a two part cannon or a four part cannon, simply explained. And speaking of that, I remember. Um, uh, to tell you that, uh, you know, the album Heart Songs, there are, I think, 10 songs uh, with the piano and uh, Moondog is singing. It's uh, upside down music because he sings the bass line. <laughs> I think that's a clever idea. Yeah, it's amazing. It's funny. Moondog had a lot of humor. And I think the, the humor in the, 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 the creation works is not really present there. Not in this way. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's also something that is n never really communicated. You see that in his couplets too. Mm, oh yes, there's a lot of paradoxes in his poetry. He's dealing with paradoxes. You you know that if you if you have read some of his poems, I think it's a lot of paradoxes. Yeah, I just actually uh, there was a, a French publishing house that uh, translated his couplet, some of his couplets into French. Uh, and you can buy it as a as a parallel translation English to French. So I, I bought two of those just to make sure I had them. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit difficult to to translate uh, such kind of poetry into another language because it's so uh, he's very strict with his beats, you know, in in the in the words. So it's a septameter he called it. It's a seven beat. Uh, um, yeah, it's seven seven beat lines in the in the poems. You can feel the seven beat rhythm in it. Funny, I sent you that um, that poem that I stumbled across by accident, right? Uh, from um, yeah, this one. Yeah, this is a little bit bizarre because it's uh, not the same style as the the other poetry that he writes. It has not this um, rhymes and it has not this uh, seven beat feeling. Yeah, and it's it's very laconic too. Like it's yeah. uh, it uh, it feels almost more like uh, like. A, an extremely short retelling of a piece from the elder or from the from the Eddas, basically. Yeah, it must have been very very early in his kind of Viking phase, maybe. 
I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. It's a, it's an interesting, um, uh, or, or let's say it's it's a, it's a it's a white spot on the map. Uh, the the years there from 60, 64, 65, 66. Uh, I am not really sure what he was doing in those years. There are very few compositions made. There is a fantastic six-part canon that is made in 65, which is not so easy to play because it's uh, the, the range is so wide that I don't know for which instrument he had in mind. Somebody told me it could be maybe on clarinets, but also marimba probably because they you can have, I mean, they have more octaves in octaves. Um, and um, poetry, of course, there are some, but they are not dated so much, these poems. So I'm 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 not sure what he was doing in those years. That's a that's a quest for the biographer to find out. You've also mentioned that you can still actually find Moondog compositions at flea markets around New York and things like that. Can you? No, you were telling me, didn't you? That you. Yeah, I th I, I I just suggested that it has to happen. You know. Mm. When, when I'm walking around on, on, on flea markets, I find all kinds of strange things. Today, I was at the flea market in Stockholm, and I found a book from France with uh, music, 25 pieces written by Boris Vian. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, Boris Vian? Yeah, yeah. I was astonished to find it in a, in a box of junk, you know, and there suddenly there was this, it's not old or anything, it's just 25 piano pieces and the lyrics by Boris Vian. I bought it immediately for, for two, two euros. I did know that Boris Vian wrote music, but I have never heard it and I've never seen it. Yeah, so um, I, I was thinking in, in New York, maybe there are some pamphlets that he was selling on the street that shows up suddenly in a, in a, in a, in a package of, of uh, sheet music from musicians that has uh, passed away or something, or they sell and there is a, like a bookmark in some pieces there, you know, Moondog sold just one sheet or two sheets. With with some lyrics and some uh, poetry or poetry or and music, that's what he um, uh, sold on the street. Mm. I know there are a few copies of the the Great Canon and the Piano Book One and Two in very large format. It's made for for pianists. They are a double size, I think, from Dina Four. I think it's a double or even more. It's very very big. And in those days, there were no copy machines, it was handwritten. So he had to, to pay these people to write out his music. First, there was somebody who has to write it out from the braille, which he was reading. And then he was proofreading it backwards, back, back again to him. So he uh, controlled that it was right. And then he had, a, of course, uh, somebody who has um, the skill of writing um, professionally uh, write uh, music. And that cost him a lot of money, I think. For each, in, for each instrument, somebody has to write every part out. So um, it was a lot of work and a lot of costs, I think. So maybe he focused on writing a lot of music in, the, in, in those years, 64, 65. That can be. But he also lost music, I know, because there is a, a piece he called uh, um, Prelude and Fugue, dedicated to Johann Sebastian Bach. And um, he said, he told me that he wrote another one, he got, which got lost. Somebody stole his uh, paper bag with, with all the stuff in it and it got lost. He never found it again. 
I mean, hopefully somewhere it is, but nobody knows. And maybe there is a person somewhere who has this, uh, some, some of this braille music and I don't know what it is. And that's also an, an interesting aspect. Uh, when I, uh, after Moondog's death, I, I brought um, a blind person with me to, to Germany to, to, to find out what was in, this, uh, in his composition in books. And the funny thing is that, um, for example, when he, um, he put them together in one book, he was gluing them together with some uh, brown tape and so on to make some books. And it was written like uh, piano book number one by Moondog. Not Louis Harding, it was Moondog. So I had a feeling that he was kind of like a, another person when he was writing music, then he was his, uh, his totem, <laughs> his totem uh, name, Moondog. And in private, he was Louis Harding. So um, um, he wanted to keep it this way as well. So when he printed the music, it was also said by Moondog, not composition by Moondog, but not by, Moon, by Louis Harding. Everybody who was in New York at the time seems to have like some kind of recollection of him. I even have a friend uh, who um, who says that she saw Moondog when she was a little girl. She got on the bus with her brother and he came on and uh, uh, he scared her brother because he shook his spear or something like that at, at him or something oh. like that. <laughs> So the brother shook his spear, or Moondog shook no, his spear? No, Moondog shook his spear at her brother. I think that's how the story goes, and 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 he was a little scared. Yeah, I heard many many stories. There is one story that I, I really touched me a lot. It was um, long ago. Um, somebody was doing some research and uh, got an email from uh, a woman uh, who met Moondog when she was a child. Like I don't know maybe six or seven or something. And um, she was uh, walking with her mother and um, they start to argue about something and she started to cry and the, the, the mother gave her a slap or something like this to shut up or something like that. And she was crying and screaming on the street. And Moondog must have heard this from a long distance, you know, that they were approaching near, came closer to him. And when they finally got up close, they stopped in front of him and she stopped crying. And then he leaned down to where he thought that she was standing. And, she, and then he whispered to her, I'm on your side. And she never forget that line. She lived on that line for the rest of her life. That kept her very strong. You know? <laughs> it was not she that was wrong. It was the mother that was wrong, you know. And an adult person told her that she was right. <laughs> I think that's so cute. Very, very touching story. There was, a, I met a man in the north of Sweden. He was a journalist, music journalist. And he, when he was a young student, he went to New York and then he saw Moondog there. And then he went up talking to him and told him, oh, I'm from Sweden. And so, oh, you're Sweden. And then he started to talk a little bit. And then suddenly Moondog said, you know, well, they say that we have, Religious freedom, you know, in America, but simply we don't really have that because they don't allow human sacrifices here. <laughs> and he got totally scared and ran away from there. <laughs> he really frightened him with this. I said to him, he must have pulled your leg. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> that's, uh, that's amazing. I've heard that uh, at some point in his life, probably when in his phase where he was very interested in Norse mythology, he had this idea for like uh, this culture festival. 
which would involve like band collaborations and, and music and poetic recitals and things like that. And it would happen like on the summer solstice. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. I mean, the summer solstice and the winter solstice are, are big celebration days because they are astronomical, right? Hmm. So the Christmas should be on the, on the, the, the 21st. And also the midsummer should be 21st because the 21st is the, 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 the when, when it uh, changes, you know. And the fact that I was, I am born at the 21st of December, then, uh, oh, wow, that's an interesting day to be born on, he said. So uh, um, 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 he, he, I mean, he, he wrote a calendar. I don't know if you have seen this calendar, but it's a. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, I don't really remember how many months it is, but it starts the twenty first and ends on the twenty first. Yeah, has, it's, uh, I, nine I, months a year or something like this, and they start on twenty first of December, sort of, and then. And there's also an interesting fact uh, about this month that Mundo pointed out to me that is, uh, um, you have August and after August called September and September is seven and uh, October is eight and November is nine and December is 10. So it's a, the December is the 10th month. And um, uh, when my daughter was born, the 27th of November, Mundo wrote a poem and sent to me and to, to give to her. And because she was born on the Thanksgiving day, 27th, and two plus seven is nine, and November is nine. So I uh, gave her the name Nova, which is, which is from the number nine. Interesting. But uh, yeah, I know that Moondog made this calendar system that starts, I think, with the, uh, with the agricultural revolution or, or something like that. It's like a very like deep, long-term, very complicated system that... Go, yeah, but this is not the one I was talking about. Okay, this is not what I was talking about. I was talking about a, a, a calendar, um, mm -hmm. like an almanac, and it was for every year. Mm -hmm. It was Moondog's calendar, and then he made a um, such a how do you say an infinite calendar. Yeah, which uh, you can find out. I think you can find it in the library in uh, New York, in the city library. There is a, in the historical department on the wall, there is Moondog's calendar, which you can find out a date and which day it was, if it was a Sunday or Monday or what it is, uh, way back till 44 before Christ, up till uh, 3200, I think. Oh, wow. That's, uh... so it's amazing. It's amazing. And he, he made it out. In, he, he, he built out himself. He didn't... Uh, um, he made it in his way, and uh, they found it so uh, simple to use. It takes like 20 seconds to find out. So uh, if you look for your own uh, birthday, your, your day of birth, and then you will find out immediately if it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It took him three months or three or four months to work it out. Uh, what do you think that interest came from uh, with, with numbers and, and calendars? And... I think it had to do with his uh, chaos, that he wanted to find order in chaos. And uh, he was very good in mathematics. And uh, he, uh, he understood that the number nine is sacred because it's, uh, we always, everywhere we count with nine and then we have the zero. And that he was uh, also composing. You can find it sometimes there are nine part canon. They are 80 bar, 81 bars long and stuff like this. So he was experimenting with this, uh, uh, how do you say, magic numbers or what you say. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so he was very fond of this. If you if you find sheet music, sometimes you will find it out that it's um, 
it's um, easy to to that sometimes, especially in the creation with this uh, um, this Edda music, it's uh, very very mathematic. So I think that's why it's because of of uh, finding a, a way of uh, getting order because his life was not so easy. It was a disorder, and uh, but in his music he could make order and he could control this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm living with this 24 hours a day in here. So, yeah. You've made kind of like a brand out of that, performing his music in different projects and also kind of uh, developing on it yourself, doing various sorts of musical collaborations, uh, like intercultural work. And Yes, uh, I, I have done that. Yes, of course. But uh, I also uh, find out later that um, my heart is with moon, moon dogs, you know, always. And I think when I'm using his uh, trimba in, if I have used it in other directions, you know, I feel that uh, these in, this uh, percussion instrument comes in second. You have uh, normal drums, uh, Western drums, you have bongos, and you have uh, um, um, uh, Middle East darbukas, you have Indian tablas, and sort of things, and then comes suddenly Moondog in there. So it's it's like... It's not, um, and, and Moondog's uh, trimba is so near to his own music where this instrument really comes to life in a totally different way. They are so connected. So it's working both ways, so to speak, that uh, the, 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 the music by Moondog, written by Moondog, goes into the trimba and trimba goes back into the music. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like trying to play it's like trying to play banjo music on a guitar, right? You know, it's, it just doesn't mm. doesn't become the right it's not the right, it's not, it's not no. the same thing, you know. Right. Right. And the trimba fits so well, you know, it's really like a hand in a glove. So my heart is uh, mostly with Moondog music. And then, of course, I do some percussion solos. And I also um, improvised in the studio some, some solo drum pieces, which I have. Um, but everything is, of course, um, um, from the fundamental uh, rules of, of uh, how to play the, the beats by Moondog. And then I create some other uh, percussive elements that's somehow melodic or what you can see me melodic things on layers on top of each other mm. that I have done. Mm. And I, sometimes there are things that uh, on the trimba that I would have liked to have showed to Moondog, look what I have in, look what I found out, what I can do, which I never heard you did before. You know, I would so much have loved to have showed it to him, but um, it was too late. Because I became more or less uh, professional with this uh, playing around the world, you know, after his death. When Moondog died, I was invited to Germany first to play with the Bochum Symphonic Orchestra and uh, some other small groups. And uh, then we got more and more concerts there. And then in the end, I, I uh, uh, played very, very much in Europe. And America also. I've been in, played in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania and in New York. It seems that Moondog uh, today has, is, it seems especially popular among musicians in France for some reason. I think uh, he did a lot of work there and got people interested. And, and the fact is that uh, Dominique Ponty, the pian his, uh, Moondog's pianist, 
was living there. She was, uh, she was born and raised, she's a French, French woman. Unfortunately, she died uh, last year or two years ago in cancer. I knew it was coming because she was really, really uh, in a bad state when I met her. But we succeeded in making an album together in France. Uh, yeah, so in France and then and also in Germany and uh, now in Sweden as well. Now, since I came back here and uh, started to have some concert in, in Sweden, um, I'm so happy that I have attracted a lot of attention at concerts. We filled the, the jazz club in, in Stockholm before uh, this pandemic came and uh, we were all astonished that we had a full sold out nearly there. That was amazing, and now when I when Moondog was here, and when I played Moondog as a as a younger person, there were it didn't seem to be any interested of his music. But I think maybe I grown and been better, and I I also can I, I can approach uh, really professional musicians today, which are really really good, which can play this music very they learn how to play it very fast you know they need not so much work with it and i think when i when uh, when you play with really good musicians really strong players then you also grow by yourself your your own my own playing is growing as well you know so it's uh, um, um, something is happening is developing out of that i think more and more professional and i think that's why and um Maybe I have some abilities to, to catch or to give this uh, magical feeling with this music and uh, to, to the audience, and because that's my goal, you know. So um, I'm, I'm very, very, very happy. I'm thankful and happy. Yeah, and that's, of course, uh, one of the reasons why I want to have you on, because I know that you're so passionate about Moondog uh, and you have absolutely stellar performances of his music. Um, I don't know if, if if I can get permission to 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 maybe play some of your renditions here on the podcast. Oh, I would love to if you do that. I would love. Yeah, I would love that too. Um, and it could be you know whatever song, whatever song or piece that you want to uh, to highlight that you really want people to hear or something like that. Uh, from the Oreo Stories, is yeah. that the only CD you have? That's the only CD I have. Yeah. Or do you have? Yeah, no, I I have other other recordings too somewhere i have a little archive <laughs> but uh i sold most most of my records but i brought only a couple of things that i thought i was going to use in the future or that i didn't want to get rid of and and the oristorio cd was one of the few cds i brought with me to the united states i don't even have a record player here oh you got rid of your collection of records yeah yeah short-sighted <laughs> oh yeah oh my yeah what do you, what made you do this? Why did you go to New York? Uh, well, my wife is uh, my wife lived there. She was my wife then, but one of us had to move, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. I I know the I can understand the situation. I've done it myself. The same thing. I got rid of my my record collection also for this thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's still big. It's getting. I, I don't I don't buy vinyls anymore, but. Uh, CDs, of course, when there are something to buy. So, but I have a lot of stuff already, so I don't need so much anymore. I collect uh, mostly things that comes in mind, you know, from the Yesertal and Residence. <laughs> That's a good combination. Yes. Zappa, yes. Residence, Moondog, and Yesertal. Isn't that a good? 
Yeah, that's, so, a that's combination. Yeah, that's a good combination. That sounds like an an excellent evening. Yeah, I started I started buying <laughs> instruments again. That's what I started doing. I haven't be, begun bar, buying records, but oh, I bought. Do you play anything? Yeah, I play uh, a little bit of guitar. I play jaw harp, mm-hmm. like the boing boing. You know. Uh, what is that? Um, I'll show you one of these. The. the Mouth harp. Ah, this. Yeah. yeah. Now I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Moondog and I, we, we played this, but we, we got uh, uh, pain in the teeth afterward. All in the technique, and it helps to have a good one. I had a bad one for many years, and I couldn't make any progress, you know? There's a, there's a guy in the Ukraine who makes uh, amazing mouth harps. Uh, ah. Yeah. Uh, it's a long time I, I played this. I have some. I have a few as well. What yeah. else do you have? Uh, I don't know. I am a chord organ that I have in the basement that my my wife hates when I play. She says it sounds like funeral music. Is it uh, the Indian chord chords? You mean such a chord organ? Uh, no, no. I I wish you mean like a harmonium or something. Uh, no, it's like yeah. it's one of those electric ones from the from the sixties with a fan built into it, so that it's like a, it's a reed organ, but it's, oh. it has a, an electric fan underneath that drives it. Yeah. Mm, okay. But I can't play mm. it. You know, it's just I'm just an autodidact. <laughs> I can't read sheet music or anything. Yeah. I'm just play by ear. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't read sheet music. Yeah, I can't play with sheet music. I I, I learn everything by heart. It's, it's, and Moondog didn't, uh, blind people don't read music either. They, no. they play, <laughs> yeah. they don't read it. They can, <laughs> how can you, how could you? That's not possible. Uh, that's also an, an interesting aspect uh, that I have been thinking about that um, somebody asking me also that uh, did Moondog ever play his own music? <laughs> yes, he did, but he did not record more than a f- couple of piano pieces but they are not in canons. They are not the canonic. They are uh, the Fiesta, of course, he recorded, and uh, the Seahorse, and Caribbean, and uh, yeah, some one or two more, but not more. So I wonder if he was able to play his own compositions. I mm. know that he was sitting with my mother's piano mm. when I was uh, when he was at my my place visiting my parents. He was sitting at the piano. Then he played the. The first few bars of one of his canons from canon book number one, I thought it was number, I thought it was number eight, I think it's kind of a slow, a slow piece. And I think he succeeded in playing four or five bars from it. But I never, I forgot to ask him if he could play the whole piece. But um, I, I remember him sitting with the piano and, and played this uh, few bars from his own canons. I think it's kind of difficult to, to remember canonic uh, music because uh, you get uh, confused because you play the same thing with the left and the right hand uh, at different times, you know, and mm. uh, I think it, it can be kind mm. of confusing. I have a very close friend who is a, who is also a blind person and he has been playing piano since he was three years old. And uh, he tried to play some of Moondog's pieces, but he can't remember them. It's very difficult. He said he can play Hermeto Pasquale, he can play Sapa, he can play all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to Moondog, he has suddenly difficulties to, to remember what it is and, and where to play what, you know, because it's confusing. It never even struck mm. me 
you know, he composed so much music, but that he maybe didn't actually perform any of it himself. You know, as, as you say, like, how would he be able to read his, he would have to read it in Braille and then remember it or something like that. And, and, and then he had um, um, like um, um, small notes uh, with him with uh, intros and the end, the codas, the intros and codas to keep track, you know, on the musicians. So it was not so easy for him to conduct music because he couldn't conduct really. He wasn't a conductor. So uh, um, he, in, in early years, I think in New York, he did as I do, you know, he conducts from the trimba, from the drum, because the drums are, uh, the drum are the conductor in his music. And that was confusing when I came to, to, to Germany for first time to play with a symphonic orchestra and suddenly you had a conductor standing there and said, what is he doing? What shall we do with this now? And the, some of the musicians said that it would have been better if we only follow the trimba all the time and or the other drums, you know, because uh, the, 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 the conducting is mainly in, intros and, and, and codas. So to speak, when to come, when musicians musicians know they have to count a lot to, to know exactly when they are starting, you know, and when to finish. That's very very confusing. So it's fantastic to play with musicians for years, which I have both in Germany and here too. That they they know the music so well now, so that uh, they know exactly when to start and when to stop. <laughs> it sounds stupid, but it's it's like this. Yeah, but he he composed an enormous body of work i don't we may have already said this but like it's a like a mountain of compositions a big amount of pieces yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yes and many pieces are just compositions without any instruments in mind you can you don't know what instrument should be and uh, that you have to find out sometimes you know what could fit here what could not fit here you know so uh, and something i learned also is uh, to not to mix too much different sounding instruments you know if you if you have uh, keyboard instruments then you should keep it to keyboard instrument and maybe one one uh, flute or one something like this but it's if you mix in three or four different sounding instruments it becomes very muddy and the the idea with the round disappears somehow because you want the the, the melody to go like this and then suddenly you comes the next melody and then they cross each other and then you're following this one and not this one anymore. So it's, uh, that's much more easy if uh, the instruments you are playing are almost the same, you know, like a string quartet or a quintet or only strings or only um, reed instruments, for example, and uh, pianos or marimbas. My most beloved project I have made is this uh, project I had in, uh, in uh, Java, in Indonesia. A couple of years ago, I was invited by um, Europalia, which is a, a big music festival in Belgium, located in Belgium. And they had an, an, ex, an ex, exchange with Indonesia. And... Um, I was supposed to play with a group of gamelan musicians, but I said from the very start, yeah, but to play gamelan instrument with classical uh, Western music doesn't work because the instruments gamelan are not in tune for the, for the Western music. So when I came to Indonesia, the, the, the organizer or the conductor of this group of musicians, he decided they should build a special orchestra 
for playing Western music and especially for Moondog, dedicated to Moondog. So they built, I think, nine or ten marimbas from bamboo because then they could tune it in the uh, Western scale. And it was amazing how beautiful Moondog sounded on these, these marimbas. It was incredible. You heard probably the, the CD Elk Mass. Yeah, there are yeah. some pieces from there. It fits so well. There are more pieces. Mundo wrote many other pieces in this vein. And uh, we played them with this group. It was amazing. Totally amazing. Also, his saxophone music would work. His jazz music for piano worked. Some piano music worked. It was unbelievable, a lot of pieces that could work for this instrument. It was, it was magic. It was totally magic. And uh, one little detail that I'm very proud of is that the last concert we had in London, we played in the, in the church, which is also a rehearsal room for the London Symphonic Orchestra. It was packed with seven or 800 people, it was full. And um, after our show, we had standing ovations. And that was incredible because the next day, the, the, the leader of this band, he said he got uh, information from uh, Indonesia. They told him that it's the first time Indonesian musicians had standing ovations in the in, uh, Western world. <laughs> yes, when I heard that the next day, I was like, wow, unbelievable. And it was unfortunately maybe not their own, their own music from Indonesia, but it was Indonesian musicians on their own instruments to play the music and they had standing ovations. That was the thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very happy for this moment. I really miss these guys. They were unbelievable musicians. And uh, to find um, um, uh, gamelang players in Indonesia that plays uh, traditional music and can and and can read uh, Western music notation, it's not common. They were one of the few groups of musicians that could play from sheet music. So when I came there, it was interesting because um, um, they had some problems playing this music because they, uh, they didn't know exactly how to interpret it or they started to interpret something which they shouldn't interpret, you know, they should just play what's written there, but they made some, some strange things that uh, didn't fit in. And then I said, we start from the scratch. We start with a round. So we started with um, uh, Voices of Spring and uh, this uh, Madrigal from the Madrigal album. I taught them orally to sing this song over and over. And then we, started to sing it in a in canon two-part canon and then we sing were singing it in four-part canon and then they should play the same thing on the instrument and afterwards the the my the professor said they were so happy not having a a, a conductor telling us what to do or not to do but to tell us how to do it to sing because this is the way we are learning the music. We don't write music. We listen and we play and listen and play and listen and play. So it was a, a nice door opener for them. And I'm really happy that uh, we could do it this way because then they were reading all the sheet music afterwards, no problem. They learned these pieces. They knew that it's only 16 bars to remember. We remember them and then they played. Yeah. 
for they were because they were used to remember music. They had developed the memory of music, and that's amazing. Yeah, I think together. that that is uh, that is interesting, and I think that uh, Moondog is also kind of a reminder also of that. He's kind of like a, like a a living little souvenir from like oral culture. You know, uh, today everybody is uh, we're, we're so reliant on writing to seeing things written down, and we only trust what is written down, and we so mm -hmm. we don't by by habit we don't have to we don't have to remember things. Mm -hmm. We can just record it and return to it when whenever we've forgotten it and. Mm. But it's a completely different thing, uh, like to, for learning that way too. Yeah, I think this way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think he, uh, his music is composed in in much closer to to human beings than uh, only intellectual uh, mathematical structures. Of course, mathematical ideas, but you have also this. Uh, um, feeling of, of uh, you are a human being and we are singing together and we are alone but we are singing together but I have my voice so it's very near to our um, um, our a human, a human behavior you know how, how we behave in a group and so on I think this is very very uh, unique it's very near to human beings I think it's, that's a very nice aspect I don't know what's better and what's uh, what's worse, but I think it's uh, it's one of the aspects that I like. Do you have any suggestions for people who would want to get into Moondog but don't know where to look? Ooh, hmm. Yeah, uh, because of his uh, big um, uh, how do you say spectrum of of music, I think this uh, uh, British CD um, was it. What is it called? It's um, uh, made by this um, Honest John record. It's called Moondog only. Uh, and there are a lot of different uh, pieces from different LPs and CDs. It's a good uh, sampler, a good um, sampler. Compilation, yeah, it's a good compilation. Oh, the one that is just That's called right Moondog, word. yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the best, I think. And... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a black and white photo, and it's red written Moondog down uh, from up from top to bottom Moondog, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the right side or left side. Yeah, yeah. This is the one that I I think is a good uh, opener for for Moondog. And um, yeah, that they should listen to it uh, over and over again because they will realize that you never hear his music twice. It's first time all the time. It's a uh, the more you listen, the more ideas you get in your head and the more uh, you feel that you are there with yourself, that you are not controlling, you're following the, the voices and um, you lose tracks and start to follow another voice. And the next time you listen, you will go in the other direction and another direction. So um, I think it's music that's, that goes with you all the time. You, you, you never get tired of it. I have been playing this music for nearly 40 years and I still hear some new things inside the music that, oh, what a, what a good idea he has here. Yeah. And also people who doesn't listen to music normally, who maybe is not so musically, but they can also listen to this music and they, they uh, understand what it is because it's so simple. It tells you a story very simple. And um, I also wanted to say that they should, should not uh, uh, focus so much on, the, on his image, 
but listen to his music because he wanted to be remembered from his from his uh, creative work and not for him as a person or 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 uh, his image. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank mm. you so much for coming on, Stefan. This has been a. Uh, oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this has been a true pleasure. Um, it was so nice talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, hope to keep in touch, and uh, hope to see you live in life, in real life. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. If I go to Stockholm, I'll uh, I'll say hello, and I have friends in Stockholm. I will go to tell them uh, go see your shows. Oh, beautiful! Yeah, nice. Thanks. Do that. And they will uh, write a review then. <laughs> they will write you a review. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of Brute Norse. That was Thor and the Midgard Serpent, written and composed by Moondog, performed by Stefan Lakatosh and Andreas Heuser. The electronic arrangements in this episode is the work of Helge Talkstall. Brute Norse runs on a pay-as-and-if-you-like sort of scheme. If you would absolutely like to support Brute Norse and my adjacent projects, the simplest way to do so is to simply spread the word. But you can also support Brute Norse on Patreon. I can offer a 20% reduction in my Teespring store, early access to episodes, access to the Scandi Futures Power Walking Club, that is the Brute Norse Discord server, and some tiers even get a personal postcard and some knickknacks from me. You can find a link to all of that in the show notes below. Also, Brute Norse now has a Telegram channel. That is to offer one centralized, non-social media hub, so that you don't have to check Instagram or Facebook anymore to get hip. That's the idea anyway, but occasionally I guess I'll post some short musings on there and material from the archives that I'd like to highlight. I hope in 2022 to take a few steps away from this ephemeral internet shit. So in the coming year, I hope to release a physical zine, something that you can actually hold in your hands and read in your garden or on your couch, either way, far away from your computer. But before that, I expect to release a small pamphlet of Norwegian love spells and erotic sorcery, carefully curated and translated by yours truly. I would have already opened for pre-orders for this thing, if it weren't for some issues in the global supply chain. But needless to say, I'll be screaming it from the rooftops and ramming it down your throats soon enough. Now, with all of this being said, let me say no more. But let me thank you again and say, Gudanot. And keep on walking backwards into the future. <laughs>